Hey, it's your old pal Slim, and you're listening to Faves, an upbeat talk show where the guest chooses the topic. In this episode, that's a movie. Chris Collier is co-director of Renew Theaters, which includes the nonprofit Highway Theater in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, which is where we recorded this very episode. We talked about Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, where a hack screenwriter writes a screenplay for a former silent movie star who has faded into obscurity. We also discussed early film distribution and the theory of musicology. I highly recommend becoming a member of the Highway Theater, which can be done at highwaytheater.com. Enjoy. This is actually strange that I actually think, and this is sad to say, I think I saw the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical version before I saw the film. And that was a, it was a high school class trip uh, to New York to see it. And I got to see Glenn Close in the role, which was kind of cool. And there's actually, there's talk now that she might, uh, especially after this year with the wife, um, with her role that she might they might remake the film or oh they might gosh. make the musical version and she might reprise that role. So I don't know, but it was neat to see her there, but it just, I mean, it's a galvanizing story mm-hmm. and that sort of led me to want to find out where it came from yeah. and watch the original and then realize, you know, how pale in comparison the, <laughs> the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber version was to Billy Wilder's. So. When I, when I first saw it, I was curious, like going back and watching movies that aren't like modern day, even movies that are like 20 years old. I wonder in this day and age how it hasn't been remade, you right. know, because there's remakes all the time now. And some, when I was watching it, this is the first time I've seen it. Um, it just felt ripe for a modern day retelling. Well, now's actually the right time because, and I don't know how much research you did in after watching the film. Because mm. uh, actually, one of the things that I love about it is how meta the movie is and how much Billy Wilder is kind of biting the hand that fed him. But when it was made in 1950, Hollywood was in big transition. So you're out of the war, you know, which was a big booming period for Hollywood. And, um, you know, there's a lot of social change in the U.S. to begin with. But Hollywood is having a double whammy of, in 1948, the Paramount decrees were released. And that basically broke up. It was an antitrust law that broke up the studio control over the theaters. Mm. So it used to be that studios owned all three avenues of uh, film production and distribution and exhibition. Mm. So they would make the movie, they would push the movie out, and then they had their own theaters. So like the Ambler Theater up the street opened as a Warner Brothers house, you know, and it just primarily showed Warner Brothers films. Um, So you had all of these theaters owned by studios. And there was a bit of a stranglehold in terms of the way the studios held theaters in control, sort of saying like, Okay, you're a Warner Brothers house. You want this movie? You're going to play this. You have to play these other B movies, you know, in order to get the big one. And Mm. there were all sorts of uh, limitations that were were forced on the theaters. And this decree actually broke that up. Um, So this was the first time that the studios actually like had to shop their product and um, work work for it. Work for it. Yeah. (laughs) Who who made the decree? Was that the government? Yeah. It was. Yep. Wow. Um, yeah, it was through Congress. Um, it was an antitrust measure. But you also have the rise of television. So you've got, you know, Hollywood actually having to work for it now and even having to work harder because 
televisions are exponentially going into homes. So people aren't going to the theaters the way that they used to. They can get content at home. So Hollywood is 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 terrified. Yeah. And along comes this movie, which is kind of not only mocking Hollywood, but really shows the transition that things are going through, how sort of down on their luck uh, modern Hollywood is. I mean, it starts with, uh, you've got Sheldrake, the producer, you know, who's chomping on the the Alka-Seltzer <laughs> and like just like really stressed out yeah. about everything. Uh, um, Joe can't find work. One of my favorite lines in the movie is just at the beginning where he's hiding his car behind the shoeshine shop. And uh, Rudy never ask any questions about your finances. He just look at your heels and know the score. I wrote that down in my notes. Yeah, I specifically remember line. what an amazing line yeah. that is. <laughs> and it felt very film noirish. Right. You know, that kind of narration, cynicism, and telling it like it is. Now, have you seen perfect. Double Indemnity? Not in many years. Okay. But yeah, so, I, I mean, remember but that that's movie. also Billy Wilder, and that's mm-hmm. earlier, and that also has, you know, great narration of Fred McMurray talking about basically leading up to his death at the end, um, or supposed death. Yeah, so it starts off with that vibe of it's going to be a film noir, you're trying to figure out about this murder victim, but then it sort of switches into this real bitter, sarcastic look at the state of Hollywood, how it was built on these silent stars and sort of forgotten and thrown Mm -hmm. away and kind of gets into the state of the industry as it stands right there in the 50s with things on the precipice. Now, why it makes sense to remake that today, we are in that same world and swap out television with Netflix or Amazon Mm -hmm. or on demand and you've got those same pressures. And actually, strangely enough, uh, uh, the Paramount decree is actually up for discussion. Really? Um, Again, it's uh, actually one of the biggest things that stresses me out in my job right now. (laughs) How so? How would that... um modern like modern take on that what what would change what well, would a happen well modern take is whether or not it still is valid because then the only way that you had distribution or you know that you could get this content out was in a theater and now there are so many other channels of you know whether it's on demand or subscription television or you know even cable that you know there's a question of whether this model you know that was blocking a a whole use of a system is even relevant today. Mm. So and is it possible that like Warner Warners wouldn't have to do the theater? They could just do Well, I mean the, the question instead. is, I mean, if you're looking at so, okay. Disney just bought Fox. Right. So Disney and Fox are one giant studio. They are in the process of building their own streaming platform uh, to compete with Netflix and Amazon, which is gonna have all the Disney content and all of the Fox content. So the question is, if you can bypass the theaters entirely and you're just putting the content out, I mean, what is the purpose of that decree anymore? Mm. You know, if, you know, so basically the studios are going back to, you know, from soup to nuts, uh, you make it. Get exactly what they had before. Right. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that they'll just, in in a decade or shorter, they'll just buy, like, we're not going to put this in theaters. They're just going to be on our app. I mean, if you really want to get nitty-gritty, the Paramount Decree actually only names uh, a very small number of studios. I think it's six. Um, I think it's the, you know, the only big ones that were there. So it was Fox, Paramount, Warner. But, you know, it it doesn't name some of these other studios. So they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about 
like Netflix isn't on there, Amazon's yeah. not on there, so they're not bound by that same law. So mm-hmm. I I think there is going to be a change. But that to say, working in the movie industry, I feel this tension. Yeah, this uncertainty. And it actually makes Sunset Boulevard even stronger now because after however many years, you know, it's still as fresh as it was. Yeah, that was the first time I've I've watched it ever was um this weekend. And right off the bat, there's that long take, that long shot to open the movie. And that was like the first thing. And I was like, oh, what a great shot. I mean, it's like rare when you just watch regular movies anymore. You don't think like, oh, wow, what what a great shot that is. It's kind of like second, you know, it doesn't happen as often anymore. Um, The music was booming. Uh, I just knew that I was in for like a, just a delight, a delightful viewing experience. And I try not to research the movies as much um, beforehand. So I kind of glossed over the fact that this was going to be a noir film where you have the lead actor kind of very pessimistic and cynical and talking about getting it mixed up into trouble and him walking upon that uh, mansion when he first meets the, you know, the washed up quote, uh, silent film actress. I love the mansion. I was like, Oh my God, why don't someone take care of that mansion? It's beautiful. And when he stumbles into from circumstance to meeting her in the house, there's a scene in there where she thinks he's like a care, like a funeral caretaker right. uh, to, to come and take this body. And he comes upon the body and the arm falls down and it's a chimp's arm. <laughs> I'm like thinking to myself, what kind of relationship does this woman have where the only people she can like talk to is a chimp and this is like her one confidant but her character is so multifaceted it really shocked me the view in this era of depression and Hmm. or how they considered melancholy at the time and it hits on subjects with her that i was really surprised that they did where she was uh multiple times she was attempted to slit her wrists because she was so depressed about the current state of her life even though she was rich like ungodly rich allegedly from her from her silent film days but how not only was she depressed but it seemed like she had like a mental issue at this point in her life mental imbalance and she probably needed like some hardcore psychiatric help um absolutely but the way that they viewed that with joe kind of like joe telling her to like pick her up pick herself up by her bootstraps i thought that was a fascinating time capsule oh that's really interesting i've i've always focused on it from the sort of insider mm-hmm. film side that, uh, yeah, I hadn't considered that side of it. And re- you really see it through the bridge of the film where she's got issues going on. She wants to get back in the game. And it really starts to crumble for her character when, you know, Joe starts working on the script with her, this terrible script somehow, but he takes the job anyway because he needs money. And she thinks through her connections in the past with DeMille that she's a shoe in to get this movie made. And like, I sent him the script. He's, there's someone at the studio that keeps calling me, but it's not him. So I'm not going to answer. He, I deserve to be heard from him. Right. Um, and then once you find out the reason that they're actually calling her is because they really just want to rent her old car. They don't want her at all. But I, after I watched this, I, I contact my dad because it's one of his favorite movies. And I, didn't look on Wikipedia when I was done, but I didn't realize that DeMille was actually played by himself oh, yeah. in this film. He did great. He's like oh, a phenomenal amazing. actor. Yeah. <laughs> what are the chances? No, and that that's the other thing that I think makes it even more 
I mean, Hollywood loves making movies about Hollywood. Mm. And my adage is, if there's ever a movie about Hollywood up for the Oscar, you got to bet on that. That's why The Artist, Argo, all of those. Right. That's why La La Land not winning was a huge shock. <laughs> um, I think Moonlight was the better film, but still. The thing that makes this one even more uh, disturbing on some levels is the the amount of like personal and real touches in there. So it's not only DeMille. But so Norma Desmond is played by a real silent star, Gloria Swanson, um, who is very different, very different from Norma Desmond in that, you know, she was very successful and very driven and was not, you know, a narcissistic recluse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, she actually worked well into her 80s and was, you know, really tireless on the set. But all of those pictures that are scattered around the mansion, I mean, those are pictures of her. Eric von Stroheim, um, who plays Max the butler, uh, was actually a director who directed... I, I, could, I couldn't believe it yeah, when, when I found that out. Who directed Swanson. And my favorite little touch is the movie that they watch when there's the scene where he rolls up the curtain and they watch a movie. That movie is, uh, I think it's Queen Kelly. And it's a 1928 film that... Eric von Stroheim directed Gloria Swanson in, and it was never released. Wow. So that, I mean, there's a level of reality in there that like, that is a movie that they actually made together and just sort of looking back at the past. Um, and then you've got, you know, Buster Keaton and a bunch of other people in there, Hedda Hopper at the mm -hmm. end, uh, the diner that they go to in the beginning is a place that, you know, all the writers normally hung out. So it's a very personal insider look yeah, at hollywood meta. yeah meta very film. meta and for 1950 to be that meta one of the stories that you know the, the the thing that shocks me is how much the industry then actually applauded the film um it was nominated for a ton of oscars people expected it you know to win it, it ended up losing to all about eve which is another meta sort of look mm. at behind the scenes but more on the the theater side but most people were in love with it and it, it's really shocking considering it is basically saying like hey your industry is going down the tank and you're all sharks <laughs> and you're all you know you're all animals you're, yeah you're you're just like wasting you're taking these people and chewing them up and spitting them out mm -hmm. you know um the one story is that the one person who uh, was a uh, louis b mayer um of metro golden mayer uh basically told uh, Billy Wilder afterwards, he's like, I can't believe you did this. You know, mm. you're 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 turning your back on the industry that, uh, you know, they were both emigres, and you know, it's, Hollywood was a really important space for those people who uh, escaped Europe. And he's just like, you're turning your back on wow. all of this. And um, there's there's a lot of personal story in that film that I think that's what gives it its staying power, not only just the the way it's told. I was digging into some interviews about the film and. And kind of Billy Wilder's style, uh, I hadn't watched one of his films in probably a decade or more, and they were talking about how his focus is mainly on the writing, he's less of a kind of cinematic filmmaker, but I felt like that wasn't even really that true at all in this film. There's so many shots that were gorgeous. I mean, you Murph referenced the theater scene where she plays one of her silent films. At the end, when she stands up and right in front of the projector... And the, you oh. see that side profile of her. That was one of the, the most beautiful billowing shots the I've ever yeah. seen. Uh, like unreal planning that shot. And then not to mention the the opening or one of the opening shots of him in the pool. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays with the technology that you have, I mean, that, that doesn't jump out at you. But 
I mean, in the 50s, the way that they got that was, you know, a series of mirrors in the bottom of the pool with, you know, getting the reflection just mm-hmm. right with the flashbulbs going off. Uh, one behind the scenes story I was reading said that, you know, it was also not a heated pool and uh, oh, William Holden was just <laughs> lying in there for a long time at the studio uh, getting very cold. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, to say that Wilder is not as cinematic, I mean, between the scene you mentioned and that and that final scene coming down the staircase, I mean, those are breathtaking and really impactful images. Mm-hmm. I was watching this movie with my wife and we were following the kind of B story of Joe eventually getting some potential work of writing outside of her film with Betty. And they're kind of working at nights while he's living in the mansion, presumably kind of in a pseudo relationship with the actress, very strange relationship that they had. And he's building a rapport with Betty, this other woman who's um, engaged with one of his best friends. And Something I noted that there's a few notes that I wrote that are very kind of uh, time capsule from this era where there isn't a lot of modern day showing of like flirtation or um, like being physical with each other to convey that they're falling in love. You don't really see it until they have this moment at the end, uh, at the end of one late night where she get asked by she gets asked by her fiance to come visit him in another state and she's worried about it and she says she can't because you know i'm in love with you and they have this like kiss and it's a very rare uh scene to see two actors kind of slowly building up something and then they then they embrace at the end and my wife kind of my wife and i kind of giggled because it's very old school you don't see right. that kind of non-display of affection until the very end people don't have patience for that anymore (laughs) no they don't (laughs) you kind of get that in a modern movie in like a rom-com you'd get that in like the first scene of the movie and then it's like the rest of the 90 minutes is the something that keeps them apart exactly right Yeah. yeah there was another part that i wrote that i'm always tickled by which is how men in this era carry themselves and it just it could just be walking like seeing joe walk across the street it's so timeless in the way he carries himself. His like maybe his left arm swings right. and his right arm is kind of always in the position of holding a cigarette at his side, but there's no cigarette there. And it's, it's just the way that men carry themselves in this era I find so fascinating. There's also a lot of good hats. Oh I'm, yeah. I miss the for classic sure. hats, yeah. For sure. <laughs> I couldn't figure out Norma Desmond's age in this movie. She seemed like somewhat older, but then often not very you know, aged. She's still like, like you could still be a leading actress in my mind. Right. I mean, and there was some actually interesting, the costuming in particular, Edith Head, um, who's uh, the character of Edna in The Incredibles is Mm. based on Edith Head, like is the, like the designer for Hollywood. So if you think of like uh, Grace Kelly's dresses in Rear Window or, you know, a bunch of other like, key costumes um any of the audrey hepburn dresses things mm. like that it's normally all Edith had um she purposely designed uh norma desmond to have all the materials were f- you know and some of the rough shape was from the silent era like big art decoy kind of things but all modern trim mm. so it was like purposefully done to make her look out of time but still modern and elegant and like she fit in and i think that also fit with she wasn't like completely washed up like she did still feel like she could walk onto a set Mm -hmm. it's just 
slightly removed from reality. Yeah. I was struck by some of the decisions where Joe was forced to make where he eventually was upset because they have a New Year's Eve party uh, that she hires like musicians to come in on this dance floor. There's food and Joe finally arrives and he's like, oh, well, you know, what's going on? We're the guests. It's getting late. Are they coming? And it's really just them. So they have like, she planned this whole night just for him to get dressed up and dance uh, until the new year. Right. And well, it's for her. Well, yeah, yeah. Good, good point. <laughs> Which is a very strange turn of events in and of itself. But eventually he leaves and goes to see his old friends at a party. That's where he first kind of like meets up with Betty again. And he's kind of out at that point. He thinks, he's like, can I stay with you for a while? I think I'm going to try to get another job. And it was kind of like a fork in the road where what could have been for him if he had just stayed there and not gone back to her house because he calls to have Max you know, pack up his things. But he's like, Max is like, I can't talk to you. The doctor's here. She tried to kill herself again. So he rushes back to the house, realizes he has to stay. And that sets him on the path of, you know, eventual death, unfortunately right. for him. But what, what could have been for him if he had just stayed there and not gone back, not even made that phone call? Like what if that young girl never got off the phone? He would right. have been, you know. Oh, there's, there's so many, so many little moments like that. Like, what if he turned into a different driveway? You know, it's yeah. just like, it, it's just incremental. And you sort of see him get trapped, not trapped in a web, because it's partly of his own doing that, you know, he is, he sees a payday and he sees, he thinks he can game the system. Mm -hmm. um, but he's actually dooming himself with every step that he takes. Right. Yeah. He's not like a perfect individual too. No. That's what I was kind of notating in my notes as well. But he eventually, there's a really kind of troubling scene where Norma kind of finds out about Betty, that he's going there late at night to write this script. So she has been phoning Betty and kind of leaving very strange messages like, don't trust Joe. You don't know him. Ask him where he lives. And Betty answers, and she's she's really troubled by this. And Joe comes home. Well, ask him. Ask him again. That's right, Betty. Ask me again. This is Joe. Joe? Where are you? What is this all about? Well, better yet, why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086. Sunset Boulevard. So she rushes over there while Norma's having a breakdown and he shows Betty the estate and he's angry, he's stressed out and he's just made, made me uncomfortable. He's like, yeah. look at this, Betty. This is where I live. Look at Norma's phot photography of herself. This is this is how I live, Betty. But I'm staying here. You need to leave. Yeah. And Doesn't I was he like, even say and take a swim in my pool? Yeah, he does. Because that I, that is one of those... I mean, if that's the cresting moment, like that's his downfall. And then he's going to, he's going to take a long swim. Yeah, he does. I, I couldn't believe that he chose in that moment. Uh, it seemed like he was choosing Norma because he tells Betty to leave. And uh, I was really shocked at this character's progression of this movie was to not stay with Betty and not have Betty end her engagement with uh, his friend. So she leaves in tears and Joe is kind of staying at the moment. I'm like, man, I can't believe he's staying with Norma, but he's really packing up his things and he's leaving and he's going back home to Ohio. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's still a pretty good point for him to start over at. And then it just goes downhill from there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which leads into the ending of the movie, which in and of itself is spectacular, 
the police arrive because she shoots Joe and he stumbles gracefully into the pool, which is an amazing death scene. I thought like the first shot he's doing his walk, his 1960s yeah. walk and he doesn't, the first shot doesn't phase him, but the second one, he like does his famous death scene in the pool and the police arrive. And this is the oft quoted scene where she's com completely had a psychotic break and the police need to trick her into leaving her bedroom and Max sets up movie cameras and he's like, it's time for your big, big scene in your movie, Norma, come yeah. on down. So she's acting her way down the steps. Well, it's not only that Max sets up movie cameras, but you've also got to realize that in theaters at that point, everything is preceded by a newsreel. So that's, I mean, that's the news of the day that they're mm -hmm. coming with cameras to, you know, there's been a murder. So this is, you know, ABC News showing yeah. up like to capture what's going on, but he's staging it to now make it look like those cameras are her shooting. So uh, thinking of it from the other side, I mean, there's this, there's a disturbing, almost voyeuristic, like, we're watching in that final scene, you know, what some newsreel guy is capturing going to put and just say like, it, it's a tabloid, you know, mm -hmm. it's become this, this star. And you think about, you know, what you see on the, you know, the magazine racks now with all the tabloid stuff. I mean, it, it pushes in that way. And that's why it, it, every time you watch the movie, it's just like, this is really dark. Like yeah. it, it, there's humor <laughs> and there's, you know, but it, it, it's got a real biting sarcasm mm -hmm. to it um max's reaction too when he's in between those two cameras you can see him kind of like tearing up as she's walking down the south it's so powerful yeah. seeing him kind of realize that it's over happy I am to be this back is finished in the studio making a picture again you don't know how much i've missed all of you and i promise you i'll never desert you again because after salome we'll make another picture and another picture you see this is my life it always will be you mentioned about uh billy wilder and you know, being more of a, a script writer and dialogue i mean they shot that final scene a number of times trying like okay now walk down holding this arm this way now walk down in this costume and like just variation upon variation until they got it just right and mm -hmm. it is it is bone chilling yeah it, it is a really hard way to end the movie <laughs> very uncomfortable there was a, a, another line that i forgot to um mention and i think this might have been during the projection scene where you're norma desmond used to be in silent pictures used to be big I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh -huh. I knew there was something wrong. The interesting thing about Wilder is he seems to be able to jump from genre to genre. I mean, you think of someone like John Ford and you just think Westerns and you think, you know, variations on Westerns, etc. But Billy Wilder, um, I mean, Double Indemnity is such an iconic film noir. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have some like it hot, which is just one of the most off the wall kind of bonkers comedies. Mm -hmm. And I, that's the thing that I really respect most about Wilder is it, it can really run the gamut. Um, but always with high class and always with, uh, yeah, the, 
fighting dialogue. The dialogue is really yeah. kind of the best It's very parts. rare to find a director that can just jump genres like that right. and make them all amazing. Who would you say your favorite director is? Do you have like a director that you seek out no matter what they film? Are you watching them over and over again? I mean, that, that's really, it's a difficult question because, uh, you know, there, there's so many different uh, great directors over time. I, I, one of the first films that got me into movies as art um, was Fellini's Eight and a Half. Mm. Um, I, I was really into Fellini for a while and really loved his films. In terms of modern uh, filmmakers, I mean, I will watch every new Wes Anderson film. I think he's got a certain style and uh, craft that's just amazing, and I can't wait to see what he comes up with mm. next. Um, it's an interesting... There's a, a game that uh, some of us play uh, within our company of just... If you think of other like solitary arts, like uh, novel writing or composing or painting, um, there's a lot said about like the late great works of you know those people. Like they've they've over years build up and build up and you know their talent. You you think about their late works more than their early works. But filmmaking is so collaborative, and it seems like originality is rewarded. That a lot of the early works of filmmakers are the things that. Uh, stand out so to me it's finding it's a challenge of finding like what directors are more known for their later works than they are their early works and that's just another way of spinning it of just like who will you watch anything that mm. they come up with and yeah one of those names is always wes anderson that i think he just keeps refining and getting better what do you think your best film of 2018 was that you saw this year oh, i'm still working on my list and i've still got a couple more to see <laughs> um I, one that honestly jumps out, and it's a it's a smaller film that I don't think many people will have seen, but I was really, really blown away with uh, Chloe Zhao's The Rider. Mm. Um, it's set in South Dakota. Um, it's about a, a rodeo rider who suffers an accident, um, has, you know, a head injury, and is debating whether he gets back on the horse and sort of re-enters the ring and it could cost him his life. Mm. But it's a, it's a really intimate look at um, masculinity and, uh, you know, what, what is expected um, sort of in the West and uh, kind of plays with the idea mm. of the American ethos. Um, it's also made more powerful by the fact that they are, it's all acted by non-actors oh. um, who actually have had like the the main actor was someone who was a rodeo rider who did have this injury, and so there's a truth to that one as well. Um, that I just found really moving and really uh, just really personal. Um, mm -hmm. It's a story that you know you don't really see. It's a very small American uh, look at a you know a small intimate story, but uh, acutely American in a way that. You know, when you think of America right now, you think of big and international or even superhero films. And this, yeah. this, this, is, a, this is a look at contemporary America. I was just about to sarcastically say, oh, it sounds just like one of those big Marvel movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that said, Black Panther was amazing. Black I Panther liked was Black a Panther, huge yeah. film this year. Yeah. yeah. My one uh, negative on Black Panther was I thought the final fight scene was a little too superhero-ish. Too much CGI. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of would have preferred selfishly that the final battle take place back on the mountain in the water, 
you know, with like their tattered superhero outfits and, you know, they came yeah. back to that scene. There's, there's only so much you can do with a, <laughs> with a big budget blockbuster. True. Yeah. That, I mean, that said, you actually could see though, the influence that doing Creed, uh, which Ryan Coogler also directed had on some of those fight scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the the boxing and sort of the setup between the two characters really led to, you know, at least on the waterfall scene and some of those other, I mean, those were even, those were so visceral. Yeah. And I think a lot of that came out of his his work on the previous film. Yeah, I'm glad he's going to be coming back for the second one. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm I was, excited. I was hoping he would. You talked about uh, collaboration in film, but I would assume there's a lot of collaboration in choosing what movies play here at the Highway Theater. What's that process like where you kind of have to make the decision to what film will show for a few weeks? Yeah, no, it's actually, it's a, it's a big decision and it actually ends up being a really big uh, jigsaw puzzle that mm. we're kind of working backwards on. Um The highway in particular only having one screen, um, we have to pick, we have to pick right. Yeah. You know, we, we need that film to do well for the theater to do well. And, you know, there's a lot of research that goes into it. Um, myself and, uh, the other members of our programming team go to film festivals. Uh, we go to a lot of trade screenings, advanced screenings to try and see everything out there to make sure that we know what the films what the films are and, you know, sort of figure out what'll fit. But then there's this other really interesting balancing act that I, most people don't recognize in that we have, we work in partnership with the, the studios and distributors who give us the film. And that means that we basically split the cost. So if you give me a $10 for a ticket, roughly it's 50%, like we mm-hmm. keep five, they get five. But that means that because we're in business together, they want us to continue playing their film for as long as possible. How does that split differ from like a Regal or a AMC? I mean, it really depends. On the chain? It, it de- in the studio? I mean, they're, they're, they're different. On average, you can say it's like 50 to 60%. Mm. Uh, a lot of blockbusters will be higher. There are some uh, places that negotiate, you know, a more sliding scale where... Mm. You know, for a big, and it's changing now that theatrical windows are smaller. Like it used to be, so like a film like Titanic played in theaters for like two years, you know? Yeah. Um, for that, you know, the studio would take 90% upfront. Wow. And then the next week they'd take 85%. And then the next week, 80%. So the longer mm. you held it, the more the theater would get. Now with theatrical windows being three months or less, mo- more people are going to a straight like more like 50 50 mm. uh, because things are turning over a lot right. faster. You're not going to get that back end. Um, but in any case, we actually book our films week to week. So because there's that percentage, we actually have to look at the weekend box office. And if a film does over X, and let's for the sake of argument call X $2,000, if a film does over $2,000 for the weekend, we're obligated to hold on to it. That's part of our relationship with the studio and mm. part of our contract. I also heard that if you see someone during the winter months come into the theater without a scarf or gloves, you're obligated to tell them to shop at Half Double Design, not your granny's crochet. Amanda can make you a custom scarf, hat, beanie, gloves, or a hand-dyed infinity scarf, and you won't regret it. Check out her store at halfdoubledesign.com. 
So if a movie is doing really well, like we had Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born for eight weeks, nine weeks, yeah. you know, that movie just kept going and kept going. <laughs> and that's, I mean, I, I, we joke here that we should rename the highway to the Bradley. Um, <laughs> all of his films are like our top grossing films. I mean, when you've got a, a local celebrity of that caliber, you know, mm-hmm. we, we gotta, we gotta honor Jenkintown's own. Maybe he needs to show up at the theater for like he, opening he's, weekend. He's done it once. And we've, we've reached out it, Bradley. If you're listening, we would love to have you here at the highway. Any, I know for a fact he's listening. We'd love to have you here anytime you want. Uh, any film you want to show, just come on in. We'll, we'll, yeah, it doesn't even we'll, have to be your film. Doesn't have to. We'll, we'll up, <laughs> any any of your favorite. We'll update it. But you know, we if a film is doing well, we're obligated to hold on to it. And if we move off of that before, you know, the contract, basically uh, the agreements that we have, we could put ourselves in a situation in which Warner says, you know, you violated our trust, and mm. you're blocked from Warner Brother ever again. You can never get our films. So we have to play nice with the people who have the content. Um, and that means sort of looking at the calendar of sort of saying like, okay, if I'm opening A Star is Born in early September, I think it's going to do well. I can possibly open another film at Thanksgiving, you know, and mm-hmm. then just sort of, so I need to think about how, guess how well a movie is going to do. Sort of put in the big blocks of like, here are the films that I, I really want to base my schedule around. And then you kind of go out into the world and sort of see like, okay, is this one going to do well? And some movies, First Man, Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land came out in in October and we were really excited for it. It's a really great film. It just didn't connect the same way La La Land did. So we sort of cleared our schedule for that one and that didn't play as long as we thought. So we needed to make some moves. So you always have to be flexible on that level, but... Yeah, the picking of films is a lot of it is back and forth between what the audience does as much as what we do. Green Book has been playing for how many weeks? Green Book opened on the 21st of November, so just before Thanksgiving. So I think we're going into week three. Has it been announced what's next? No, not yet. Not yet. We actually need to see... This is one of those, if Green Book continues to do as well as it is, Green Book could possibly roll into Christmas and then Mm. numbers shoot up at Christmas and it's kind of going to roll into 2019. (laughs) Is there like an end date where if it makes over 2000, it has to stay for at least 12 weeks? Like what happens if it just makes 2000 uh, or, you know, whatever the number is? Once Once it drops below the number, we we have the ability to move on to something else. If there is something else that we want to move on to, or we can actually split the screen, which is have two movies on at the same time, and you can grab another film that's not new, right. you know, and then um, mix those what, in. So. What if 2020 rolls around, Avatar 2 comes to the highway, and it just makes, it always hits the threshold to just stay here for like a year? I mean, I know a theater outside of Boston that had Cinema Paradiso for over a year. And they actually threw the film a birthday party when it <laughs> when it hit its one year mark. Like they had cake and everyone came. Um, this, I mean, I don't think Avatar Two is a highway film. <laughs> Maybe it should be. Uh, Chris. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's be honest. We don't have thirty five millimeter here, but we are a nonprofit. So if anyone would like to upgrade our projector to make that happen, mm-hmm. you know, you know Bradley, I know you're yep. listening still. Yeah, if you're hearing this. Maybe stop by with a new Yeah, your next film, Bradley, when you shoot it in thirty or in uh, 3D and you want to come, we'd love the upgrade and we'd love you to introduce it. Right. If James Cameron found out that you were screening Avatar 2 and it wasn't in 3D, he'd probably throw a fit. Yeah, I think a lot of our members would throw a fit too. (laughs) (laughs) Member of refund on memberships would come in at an alarming rate. We are a 
our goal is to support the community. So mm -hmm. finding a balance between over the summer, we did show Incredibles too. And that's, you know, we do want to bring in different members of the community. We wanted families to come into the theater and to support the theater. And that was a, it was a really popular film for us and it's really well made. And it's, I mean, the animation and that, the humor, it's a great film. Mm -hmm. it, it's finding that balance though, between we're not a commercial movie theater. Yeah. Uh, so finding a balance between artistic quality and then also supporting the longevity of the theater and bringing in different aspects or different segments of the community is uh, really important to us. One of your other suggested topics was uh, classical, modern classical music. And you had shared a channel with me that I actually did listen to while I was uh, doing research on the film. Oh, good work. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> it, can, it can really vary. So I apologize for any of this screeching weird stuff. No, there was actually, to. I think I listened to maybe like a Swedish or Norwegian woman. Um, I can't recall her name, um, but you mentioned you have a degree in musicology. What does that mean? So I, I, I guess I have a degree to be able to talk about music. My degree is actually in the theory of musicology. So it's talking about talking about making music. So it's so far removed from reality <laughs> that it's not a real thing. Um, I mean, you had mentioned at one point, um, you know, curiosity about how I got interested in film. And it really came from being obsessed with my parents' Star Wars records. Wow. And just like, I found the record. It was like the old record that like folded out, you know, is the double one that had all the pictures. And I would just listen to that over and over again. And John Williams' score is so specific in terms of his use of themes and everything. You could actually see the movie just listening to the music. Um, so I wasn't allowed to watch a whole lot of TV, but I could mm. listen to the music over and over again. It's like living that as you go. So I really got into film music. Um and really obsessed with John Williams. Um, so actually, my my musicology degree is I actually did research in film music. Um, so I ended up watching a lot of movies, mm -hmm. listening from the music side, but it gave me a real solid background in film that allowed me to uh, pivot into what I'm doing now. John Williams led me to become really obsessed with Wagnerian operas because Wagner has a technique called leitmotif, which is using themes to not only associate with characters, but also with big concepts. And by interweaving those themes and adapting those themes in the musical score, you can actually tell the story musically to complement what's going on on stage. So you can actually say, this is what a character's thinking after you've defined all the mm -hmm. themes. Like if you say, We'll use Star Wars as a, because John Williams used the leitmotif technique here. But if you define a theme saying, this is Darth Vader's theme, if Luke is standing on the ship looking out the window and you see him like gazing and you play Darth Vader's theme, you're like, oh, he's thinking about Darth Vader. That way you can use the music to create a separate narrative language um, talking about what the characters are doing. So I got really, really into that. Yeah. Um, and I went over and was studying in Germany um, and, you know, researching Wagner opera and was talking to these uh, German scholars and they were joking and they were just like, ha ha, you know, it's so funny how the, the use that Wagner uses, uh, you know, for this pause, this, you know, break in time, we now use to mean coffee break. And it really changes, you know, the meaning of the opera, if you think about that. And I was like, wow, I'm never going to understand this to that level. Like I'm never <laughs> going to intuit the language. And I thought, 
well, modern music, like film music though, is my, like, that's what I grew up on. Like, that's the stuff that I know inside and out. Like, I know the reference from this to that, you know, and all of these different movies in a way that I'm never going to understand the intricacies of how the German language is going to change over sure. time. But I, you know, I, I do recognize that, you know, when John Williams quotes this in one movie and sort of plays it against another, et cetera. Um, so that that's what really got me into film music and listening to modern music. And if you ask people nowadays to say, like, who are, like, name, right now, name the top 10 living composers. I don't know. People just, would, they're like, I have no idea. Yeah, like, yeah. Philip the guy, Glass. the Star Wars guy. No, but people don't even think of John Williams. Like, people wouldn't say that. Like, they don't think of it as music, per se. Mm. In the same way, you know, that you think of Beethoven or Mozart, you know, it, sure. it, it's seen as something different. Um, and I think that that's, that's a real loss because it's actually music that we all know and we actually know really, really well. And if you hear like the Superman theme or the Raiders of the Ark theme anywhere, like you have a feeling and a gut reaction to that um, that I think a lot of people... You know, like that, that's music that is not only really popular, but is ingrained in who we are. There was, um, I think it was last year, there was a popular article floating around, which was a negative on the Marvel films, which is that they don't really have a thematic score that is as powerful as the old Superman or Indiana Jones or Star Wars. There's like, if you tried to think of the music from Captain America or, you know, the Avengers, can you really pinpoint the theme the Avengers has a good theme. The Avengers, I, I'm not going to sing it right now, but the Avengers has a good theme. <laughs> and there's also, there's like, and that that actually comes up. Um, and they actually built that one really well. I, On one level, there's, I actually appreciate what they've done that they don't. For example, like John Williams' music for Star Wars, it's now been handed over to other composers. Like Michael Giacchino did uh, Rogue One and some others. And it just it kind of sounds like a knockoff. It just, it isn't right. Right. Um, and you, it becomes, it becomes so crucial to that film that I think for Marvel's scope, which is unreal in terms of how they've been able to knit all of these things together. I think it actually requires a less iconic score such that it can sort of blanket all of them and connect them. If it was so specific to each film, I think you'd feel something missing and mm -hmm. it wouldn't allow them the tapestry to continue to grow. Your degree just won out that conversation right there. There we go. <laughs> hey, it's useful for something. Thank you very much to Chris for coming on, sharing his love of Sunset Boulevard with me. And don't forget to support the Highway Theater in Jenkintown using uh, the link in the show notes. They're going to be showing Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets very soon. So my family will be there supporting the theater. We have merch. Pins are in. Stickers. And if you've written an iTunes review already, you're getting one for free. If not, that's how you get one. And if you have done a review, uh, DM Faves on Twitter or hit up favespod at gmail.com for info on how to get your pin and sticker. Real quick, reminder to all those Tom Cruise fans out there like myself, Interview with the Podcast Vampire is a retrospective on the filmography of Tom Cruise, and it's coming back monthly with the three remaining living hosts of the 
old uh, Paper Cake podcast. You can find that link in the show notes. New episodes are coming. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.